Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians as we as a church celebrate our Lord's Supper together. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we look through verses 17 through 34 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Approaching the Table Rightly. Chapter 11, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. I want to remind you after the service today, uh, we'll have a uh, business meeting to talk through some of the matters in the church family and such and things. So please stick around for that. First Corinthians 11, let's begin in verse 17 and then we'll read down through the end of the chapter there to verse 34. So we'll read together and we'll ask for God's help. Verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and as we have been drawing near in the reading of scripture and the singing of hymns and fellowship and Lord, just our minds reflecting on your greatness, we want to come humbly. We want to come reverently. We want to come with joy and gratitude, just the right combination of all of the attitudes and expressions and thoughts of the heart that should be there. And Lord, we're we're trying to rid from our hearts all of the pride, all of the stubbornness, 
self-assurance, self-righteousness, any way we have confidence in ourself, any sin that we are regarding, Lord, any, any bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred towards one another. Father, we just want to rid all of that out and come to you as we ought. So Father, we pray that you give us grace. I, I just ask God that even miraculously right now, come help our hearts to worship you rightly, to have a right frame of mind as we hear the word of the living God. So Father, we, we pray, give us grace. We're, we're thinking through this passage, show us your truths. Bless us to come to right conclusions. I ask God, give, give me grace to be useful, not get in the way, not say unhelpful things, but just your truth, to feed with your truth. So please help us. And Lord, we want to worship by receiving, and then we're going to worship in the partaking of this ordinance, this beautiful and glorious ordinance that you've given us to preach the gospel, to preach Christ, to help us, O oh Lord, to partake rightly, for all of this to please you, lead us, show every one of us specifically what we need to see and glorify your name, O oh God. So please bless this time. Um, and we ask this through Christ. Amen. Um, during the Reformation, one of the towering figures um, was John Calvin. John Calvin ended up in Geneva, Switzerland, and it became, that city became just a, a gospel fortress. The church there became a, a thriving, flourishing, healthy church from that city. Uh, God used Calvin and the workers there to raise up, train up, equip um, pastors to go out all through the rest of Europe and then even missionaries to go um, to the nation's gospel workers. It just became this place where the gospel was thriving and this beautiful work was, was done there. But when we think about things like that and we hear that there was a healthy, strong, flourishing church, we can get the wrong ideas, thinking that it must have just all been perfect with no problems or anything like this. But we learn that one of the major issues that went on at the church there in Geneva is that within the church, there was a group that believed some devastating things and really brought a lot of contention to the body there. Now, we got to kind of parenthesis here and talk a little bit about something else. One of the things we got to remember is the way that things went down in Europe's history is that it was most often the case that it was actually mandated by law, civil law mandated that citizens of particular cities were required to be a part of the church. Which on the surface, you might think, huh, that sounds like a good idea. Okay, we Baptists tend to believe that's a pretty bad idea. Okay, because what tends to happen when um, governing leaders start to like reach their fingers into the church doesn't ever end well, doesn't ever turn out well. And when you have a situation where it's like mandated for everybody to be a part of the church, well, think about what happens then and what the church can become. See, see, the biblical definition of the church is the assembly of the people of God. It's the congregation of believers, the sons and daughters who unite together as a family. Well, what happens if a whole bunch of people from the community who are not born again people of God, who are not truly following Christ, they become a part of the church. What happens there is that within the body, 
you have some tension going on of believer and unbeliever that's happening there. So, you know, I say all that kind of, you know, this is why we've done some of the things that we've done, why Baptists have a certain direction. We've seen some of these kinds of things. It ends disastrously. The unbelieving heart is always looking for a way to sin, to indulge my sin, like I want to do what I want, but then find a way to justify it from Scripture. One of the ways that people have done this throughout history is what we talked about when we studied Romans 6, if you remember that, when we began Romans 6, shall we sin so that grace may abound? If we're saved by grace, then can we just do whatever we want? Well, a group there in Geneva began to adopt those kinds of things. They began to adopt this kind of attitude of looking for places in the Bible to be able to twist the Bible so that I can sin as I please, but then still say, hey, but I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm still a good Christian. Actually, whenever you read the book of 1 Corinthians, especially one of the things that you learn there is that this went on in Corinth as well. Um, some of that, you know, sin because we're saved by grace, who cares, mixed with a little bit of Gnosticism. Remember Gnosticism, one of the tenets there was things that are physical are bad, things that are spiritual are good. And there were some groups in Corinth who said things like, hey, you know, my heart is really all that matters. This body, it's just going to be destroyed one day. So do with your body whatever you want. Eat, drink, be merry, sleep with the temple prostitutes. Who cares? The body is going to be destroyed. All that matters is that my soul is right with God. It actually became a slogan that took hold in Corinth. All things are lawful. We see that come up in the book of First Corinthians, that letter that was there. So when somebody would address sin, they would just be like, whoa, whoa, you legalist. All things are lawful. Well, a group did that exact same kind of thing in, in Geneva. And actually, they got together and would hold meetings and conspire together. And they called themselves the Libertines. All right, so you hear the word liberty in that. Every time a sin was confronted, they'd be like, hey, hey, legalist, Christian liberty. Christian liberty, okay, which is a real thing. It's a biblical principle, but they were twisting it to apply it to their sin. Christian liberty. They even went so far as to twist the scriptures where it speaks of the communion of the saints. They said, we have justification to sleep with one another's wives because, hey, we're all one in Christ, right? Never underestimate the lengths that people will go to to twist the Bible to do whatever the junk they want to do. The libertines. Well, Calvin declared that this group should be under church discipline and that part of the church discipline should be that they were forbidden from eating the Lord's Supper. The city officials, because remember, governing rulers have their hands and fingers in the church. The city officials came to Calvin and told him to stand down. You're, you can't go that far. You, you can't be doing these kinds of things. Calm down, John. And they told him to back off. So they told Calvin, you can't do this. You also got to understand that this was an era when people were regularly imprisoned and even killed in gruesome ways if they defied the civil rulers in terms of how they worshiped. If 
Calvin moved forward on his desire to ban them from the Lord's Supper, it very possibly could mean he was ousted as pastor, which did eventually happen, by the way, or worse, might even be imprisoned. This controversy and this tension continued for a while. This kind of debate about how all this ought to be viewed, it, it carried on and on, and it, and it kind of kind of came to a point. There was one particular week that it was just hotly debated, and Calvin made the declaration that the Libertines ought not partake of the Lord's Supper. The Libertines all got together, and they conspired, and they said, this, this Sunday, when it is time to take the Lord's Supper, we're all going to jump up and we're going to speed walk down that aisle. And we're going to be the first in line and he'll have to deal with us. So tensions were high. Lord's, Lord's day came. Calvin preached. It came time to invite people to the table of the Lord. And just as they planned, those libertines all jumped up out of the pews. They marched their way down to the front. But Calvin jumped in front of the elements, held his hands over them and said, these hands you may crush, these arms you may cut off, my life you may take, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. We're told at that, the room went silent. The Libertines saw that Calvin was willing to throw down to keep this ordinance from being profaned. And they backed away and returned to their seats. We are told that the Lord's Supper was observed that day with a silent and reverent awe. Calvin obviously believed that how this ordinance is treated is a big deal. It's a big deal who partakes and who does not. It's a big deal that it be approached rightly. So here's the question that I posed to you this morning. Was he right? Was he right? Should we, quote unquote, guard the table? Ought we adopt policies that we give warnings and, and forbid folks even from partaking? Or should we just say, y'all come, doesn't matter, do whatever? Is carefulness really necessary? Does it matter how we approach this? Well, obviously, you know the direction that we're going and the passage we just read. And if you've been here for past times, the warnings that we deliver when it is time to partake. There is not a small warning in this passage. I mean, for crying out loud, we are told that the reason why some of the Corinthian church members had died was from abusing the Lord's Supper. This is not a small warning. This is a, a pretty major call to a right frame of mind, to a repentant and humble heart to approach the table of the Lord. And because they had dishonored the Lord, God using the pen of Paul wrote to them, it is recorded as scripture so that the church down through the ages, we can see this call. How does God expect us to come to these times? How does God expect us to come to the table? Now, as we've been in this Lord's Supper series this year, um, most every time that we've come together, you, you know, the tone has not been 
scary or dark. We've been looking at the, the joy, the, the beauty, the poetic glory that God has written into this, why it is there. And, and I never want to take away from that, but we do have to come and honestly look at these warnings that are given. And so I just want to say from the very beginning, and we'll look at it a couple times as we go through this, you know, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're, we're, God does not want there to be this like series of, oh, is he going to strike me with lightning kind of mentality as we go through this. There is to be joy and gratitude. There is to be the acknowledgement and worship. My sins are forgiven. My guilt has been taken, but there is a call to take note, to have a preparation of the heart, a humbling and preparing to come reverently before the Lord, not lightly, not flippantly, not regarding sin in our hearts. So this is what we're going to consider this morning, the warning from this passage right here. I want to do it in three main parts, uh, just the parts of our message this morning. So first, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of uh, walk through and show the argument of the passage, just kind of give an overview that's there. We'll, we'll do that briefly. Secondly, I'm going to spend some time preaching this underlying truth of why why must we approach it in the right kind of way? What's the undergirding truth beneath that? And then lastly, I want to apply it to how we come to the Lord's table. So for us personally, what does it mean about how we approach? So the first part, let me just kind of walk you through the argument of the passage here. I see three main kind of paragraphs, parts of the passage that is there as well. Um, look through it with me. Verses 17 to 22 You'll notice what's happening there is he gives a rebuke. He had pretty stern words. It's probably the sternest rebuke that we have in the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, if you studied these books before, know anything about the Corinthian church, they're a church that was riddled with a lot of problems. And, you know, part of that was because they were saved out of some pretty horrible circumstances. Listen, they were saved out of horrendous paganism. Okay. It would be like going to Vegas and planting a church. And the people that you began to see come to faith in Christ were, were folks who were leaving gambling addictions and prostitutes and all manner of wickedness. Praise God and see the glory of his salvation. Like that this is happening, that souls are repenting and turning to Christ. But that would be a situation where there would be, there'd have to be a lot of correction. There'd be a lot of problems that would come in that kind of thing. The city of Corinth was a dark pagan place. And we see the glory of God in saving their souls, but they did have to deal with a lot of correcting and calling them to repent of sin. And so when you read first and second Corinthians, you see Paul addressing a lot of the errors that are there. This passage is one of the sterner of those sections. Second part of the passage in verses 23 to 26, he gives just a basic explanation of the Lord's Supper. And it's meant to help them understand why it is holy. It is commemorating the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. So to abuse this ordinance is to insult Christ. If someone takes an American flag, they throw it on the ground and stomp on it. We know what they're communicating. It's not 
harming the nation, but the flag represents the nation. They are giving an insult. And likewise, the Lord's Supper, while these elements are not the literal body and blood of Jesus, they are symbolic. To abuse the Lord's Supper is to profane the name of Christ in a way. It is to insult. So then thirdly, in the rest of the passage, he tells them to examine their hearts so as to prepare themselves to make sure they're engaging in their behaviors rightly and they get their hearts in a right place so as to participate in this ordinance in a way that glorifies God by rightly honoring the Lord Jesus. So there's a progression of thoughts. It's a little bit redundant, but this is kind of helpful to see it through this. The progression of thoughts is given with an application in the midst of it. So here's the, here's the progression. Number one, the Lord's Supper commemorates the Lord Jesus. So number two, Therefore, if you abuse the Lord's Supper, you are guilty of dishonoring Jesus. Number three, verse 29, because of that, if you profane Jesus, there is discipline or judgment that ought to be expected to come from that. So then number four, application, we find there in verse 28, it's scattered throughout in some other places, but 28 says it pretty clearly. Therefore, we ought to examine ourselves get ourselves in a right place before we partake to rightly respond to the holiness and the glory of the Lord. So there is a looking inward that we are instructed to do. A looking inward, a setting of the heart right, examination for confession of sin. But we need to say, you know, just still as part of the beginning here that this looking inward it's not to be obsessive. Like when we take the Lord's Supper, the point of the Lord's Supper is not, all right, everybody examine yourselves really carefully and that's all we're doing. That's not the point. As we've been studying through the Lord's Supper, we have seen that we are to look to the cross of Christ. We are to look to what this ordinance is preaching. We are to remember Christ's sacrifice, his body, his blood, his sacrifice. We are to remember these things. Our great focus is to be on him. You can't be thinking on the cross of Christ if all you're doing is obsessing on yourself. Next, in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told to look around. We're told that when we partake together, that one of the thoughts that should just be bringing like some wonder to our minds is the many have been made one in Christ. That we as a church body, individuals, souls have been saved and brought together to be the body of Christ. And even that as we think of believers in North Korea, that we are linked with them in the body of Christ. There is a miraculous kind of wonder of what has been done. And we see this in the Lord's Supper as well. And then we saw... That not only are we to look up to the cross and look around at one another, we are to look ahead. Remember that in the original Passover, the night of the Exodus, part of the whole point was that they fled Egypt in haste. God said that's one of the reasons for the unleavened bread. You ain't going to have time for your dough to rise. You're going to flee. You're going to flee in haste. And the Lord's Supper preaches to us that we, the people of Christ, there is a day coming. We will flee as well. On the day that Christ returns, we will flee. So we look up to Christ. We look around at one another. 
We look ahead to glory and we look inward for examination and preparation of the heart. So I, I wanted to say all of that to make this part clear. Let's not obsess on the looking inward part. The looking inward part is more about preparation so that I can look up and around and ahead. It's necessary, but it is not the primary and it is not the center. Here's the, here's the second part. In all of this, the, the why's behind, why the discipline, why the judgment, why the warning, and why we are called to approach it rightly, there's a premise. There's an underlying truth that's not specifically spelled out. It's given, it's almost spoken of like implied you already know it, preached throughout the rest of the Bible. It's the why some of the Corinthian church died. It's why we're told to approach the, the, the table rightly. It's the same reason why Moses was not allowed into the promised land. It's the same reason why when Uzzah reached out his hands to touch the Ark of the Covenant, he was struck dead. It's also the reason why when King Uzziah walked into the temple and presumptuously thought he could offer sacrifices, he was stricken with leprosy. It's the why behind when Ananias and Sapphira, whenever they lied to the Holy Spirit, why the Lord disciplined them in the way that he did. There's an underlying truth. It is the underlying cosmic principle that God is holy and he is to be treated as holy. God is infinitely glorious, so holy, that he is not to be taken lightly. You must take him seriously. You must tread in a right kind of way to approach the living God. It is a crime of the highest magnitude to fail to treat God as holy. I mean, really friends, when you boil it down, you can separate a great deal of true religion from false religion by this principle right here. By, by, by understanding this right here, to know God and fear him rightly, to respond to him in fearful love, joyful trembling, to respond to him rightly. This is a major part of what true religion is. It is to comprehend he is holy. He is to be feared. You must take him seriously. He is to be worshiped. He is to be obeyed. He is to be treated in a way that is consistent with his holiness. Remove the sandals from your feet before the place you are standing is holy ground. At the foot of Mount Sinai. Do you remember that before God came and met with Israel and before he delivered his law, do you remember that he came to the people and there's this, there's this uh, in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, there's some, there's some pretty dramatic things that happen there. God comes to the people and he says, in three days, you're going to meet with me, prepare yourself. Well, why do they need to do that? Like he was already talking. Why didn't he just go ahead and just show up? Be like, sup guys, have a seat. Let's talk. Why does he come like that? 
The mountain is shaking. A mountain is burning with billowing fire. They are comprehending the bigness, sovereignty, and holiness of God. And he comes and says, prepare yourselves before in three days you will meet with me. What is being communicated? What is being communicated is there is a way that we must approach God and it is not slapping him on the back like our buddy. He is the living and holy God. He is the God that 24 hours a day, 365, angels do not stop crying out in song that shakes the temple of heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. He is the one that there are at least some angels, where there are mysteries we don't understand, but Isaiah 6 shows that there are at least some angels who have six wings, with two they fly, with two they cover their feet, kind of this idea that we not appear before the Lord and expose our shame, and with two they cover their eyes. So as not to look directly on the face of the holiness of God. There is a right way to approach him. And there are ways that dishonor him. There are ways that treat him as unholy. And this is why all through the Bible we are shown who he is and then shown now here's how we approach him. Like this is part of like the big point, why you got to read the Bible for yourself. <laughs> if I can just sub point parenthesis right here. Why you got to read the Bible for yourself. If you just listen to what other people say, have you been around those circles? This is, I know I've said this so many times, my youngest childhood, we were around these religious circles that just always just sort of approached God with this just sort of flippant like, Jesus is your buddy. He wants to play soccer with you. Just always just kind of this ad, this flippant kind of attitude. But then when you read the Bible yourself, you are presented with a God who is very different. He is a God to be feared. He is the God that all of heaven falls on their faces in glad hearted. Now don't misunderstand. As we talk about this whole fearful thing, sometimes people get the idea that like we should not like him. We should want to run away. No, no, no. It's delight. It's joy but it's reverent delight. It's fearful joy. It's glad hearted trembling. This is the worship that is right. If all we ever hear about is the, the niceness of God, the, the love, of, if, if all that is ever preached is God's love, God's love, God's love, that's all anybody ever talks about, you can come to love him, but it's gonna be kind of a, a shallow, sentimental, mushy, mere emotion, rather than approaching him in the way that is right, approaching him as the God that he is. This is the worship that is right. 
I mean, by the way, I'll add as well, if all we ever talked about were the, you know, uh, scary things, the, the holiness of God, it's a fearful things to fall into the hands of the living God. And we talked about his judgment. If that's all we ever talked about and didn't talk about his kindness, his patience, his grace. Well, that's how you become a cold hearted Pharisee. Okay. Doesn't love anybody. Okay. We are to take all of these things together, but understand who he is. And then that means we will approach him in a right kind of way. When Jesus taught us how to pray, what was the first petition he taught us in the model prayer? Hallowed be your name, which is the request that we are asking God to work so that his name will be regarded as and treated as holy to all the ends of the earth. For souls to worship God rightly as all of the earth should. Souls must understand not only that God is there and not only that he's nice, we must see that he is holy. And th this illustrates also what we mean when we constantly say, you know, uh, one of the, the key starting points to how we come to know God, how we worship, how we do this Christian life. You know, we do a lot of study of the Bible. We do a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine. We're constantly encouraging Bible reading amongst the church family. But we also are careful to warn, but don't ever think that this is like the whole of Christianity. Christ, you know, the Christian life, the whole of it is not just one big Bible study, okay? We study the word in order to know, know him and approach him rightly and we often say the point of it all is not simply to memorize facts. It's not just so that we can know Bible trivia and, and win at these board games or something. It is to come to know who he is so that I will know it down to the, the marrow of my bones, know who he is, and then respond rightly. He is to be worshiped. He is to be obeyed. His holiness deserves it. This last Wednesday night, we saw uh, Jesus in the triumphal entry. And we saw that one of the things that happened there is the Pharisees were rebuking Jesus, telling him to uh, tell his disciples to be quiet, start, stop calling out all of these kinds of things. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these became silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? He is to be magnified. It's a cosmic principle. The God of glory is to be worshiped. Follow this line of reasoning with me. Now, this is going to sound a little bit like philosophical, but this is just right out of the Bible, okay? This is just right out of Isaiah, many of the Psalms. Follow this with me. It is right to love what is lovely and to hate what is evil. It is wrong to fail to love what is lovely. It is right to treasure what is truly a treasure. It is wrong to treasure something that is not truly a treasure. Okay, illustration. Imagine if a man loved his job more than his kids. Okay, now that happens. Most of the time men deny it. But let's imagine there was a man who was self-aware and he understood it. His wife came to ask him about this, press him on this. And he said, yeah, I love my job more than my kids. That's the way it should be. What should she say to her husband? Well, if she were a theologian, knew her Bible, she would say, well, that's wrong. 
Because you are to love what is lovely and value what is valuable in proportion to its actual value. It is wrong to love something out of proportion. Your job isn't worth that kind of devotion. You need to bring that love down. Your kids deserve more love than that. You need to bring your love ahead of them. That's a biblical principle. We are to value things and people according to the value that they have in reality. Okay, wives, you want your husbands to love you more than they do hunting or golf or their hobbies. It's supposed to be in its proportion. All right, now listen. God is infinitely lovely, infinitely valuable. He is infinitely worthy of all worship, all praise, all adoration, infinitely glorious. So we ought to glory in him. He is the great treasure of the universe, of the cosmos. It is right for us to treasure him as our highest desire and wrong if we put anything above him, even a fraction of a degree, and he is infinitely holy. Therefore, we must respond to him as he is. We must approach him as he is worthy of. It is cosmic treason not to. Listen, it is a cosmic treacherous thing to fail to worship God as he is worthy of. Cosmic treason to fail to treat him as holy, holy, holy. And friends, Herein lies the heart of true religion. And I don't say a statement like, that's a big kind of statement. I wouldn't say something like that lightly. This is, this is a big thing. When you get down to the, the nuts and bolts of, of what does it mean to glorify God, this is a major part of it, to know who he is, to know him and respond rightly. To know him. All truth matters. Everything you believe, it all affects you, but not all truth is equally weighty. God's holiness and that he is to be worshiped accordingly is truth that matters big time. And when it is lost, shallow, empty, hokey religion will not be far behind. The Corinthians had failed to treat Jesus as holy. They had failed to approach him as he is worthy of. And they did this by coming to the Lord's table negligently. They came not hallowing him in their hearts. And thus their behavior was one that demonstrated they did not fear him rightly in the heart. So let me come to the last part here and apply all of this. Let me make clear what it was they were doing. The root is what we just talked about. Failing to treat him as holy. Okay, but how were they doing that? There were specific ways they were abusing the Lord's Supper that brought all of this out. Four things I think are mentioned in the text here. So let me point them out to you. Four things that he was saying that they did wrong. Number one, in verse 18, notice he says, in the first place, the church was divided in its unity. There were factions, cliques. 
groups who huddled together to the exclusion of others. Now listen, in a church, you're gonna have friends that you're closer to than others, okay? That's not only allowable, that's necessary. That's human nature. It's a good thing to have very close friendships and you can't have equal relationships with everybody in the whole church family, okay? But a faction, a clique, that's something different. This faction he's talking about, this is the group that just like huddles to themselves. They won't fellowship, won't mingle with other people. They're excluding others. They're, they, you know, maybe, maybe a bit arrogant and prideful in their thinking of themselves. It's that, it's that high school, which table do you sit at kind of thing with judgment of the others. There were factions. There was a love problem in the church, a fellowship problem. There was disunity. Secondly, in verse 20, he says, when they came together, did you, did you catch the language there? He said, when you come together, you're not actually eating the Lord's supper. I mean, that's what they said they were doing. But he says, when each of you take your own supper first and then you forget about everybody else, what, what was happening there? They weren't actually then honoring the Lord in the Lord's supper. They were just making it their own meal, their own activity. It was almost like a self-supper. Number three, there was selfish disorder that took place. Now, oftentimes in the early church, they would partake of the Lord's Supper as a full meal rather than what we're used to, which is eating a small amount. Now, actually from this passage is where we get some of how, you know, in the West, there are nor most normal practices. We usually don't share a full meal, but we only partake of a small amount. Part of that comes as to his response and instruction. He says, eat at home. And then when you come to for the Lord's Supper, you know, so it's not a full meal. It's the eating of a small amount for the participation here. But notice what they were doing. They were coming together and having a full meal, but some of the people were eating more than their share. They were going up and gobbling down everything. And even like this part just always kills me. Like we talk about a church that had some problems. Can you imagine drinking so much of the wine they got drunk at the Lord's Supper? crazy. But the picture of the church's unity was robbed by the selfishness, the gorging and the drunkenness. And then lastly, uh, look at verses 28 and 29. I mean, th this whole message is here all, all, all through, but look at 28 and 29 specifically. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So this is speaking to the need for examination of the heart, um, getting of the heart to come to the right kind of attitude, confession of sin, repentance, uh, moments of worship in, in resolving to, to take care of the business that I know I should do and I've been neglecting and just in general, get the soul to a reverent place so that we are not flippant or profane. And so just to be clear here, what the Bible is preaching in this passage is not primarily a call to say, here's all of you who should not partake. What's happening in this passage is not primarily a, an instruction not to partake. What it primarily is is, Here's what you need to do and then come partake. In other words, it's like a given. If you're a Christian, you're going to do these things. 
If you're truly in Christ, you're, you're going to repent of your sin. If you're truly in Christ, okay, you're going you're gonna to gather yourself, prepare your heart, and then come. It's saying come in the right kind of way. But, but yes, there is the reality that there are circumstances when someone should not partake. So I, I want to take just a little bit of time and talk about those. But then we're going to come to the, the, the biggest and greatest application, which is how do we prepare? What are we supposed to do before we come? First, as we say every time, the Lord's Supper is meant for the people of Christ. It is meant for those who have turned to Christ for salvation. They have obeyed him. Uh, you know, we believe also obeyed him in baptism because this is the very first command that's given as part of repentance there. It is meant for the people of God. It is not meant for those who have refused him. So that is a warning we have to give. If you remember the Passover of the Old Testament, the Passover of the Old Testament was only for Jews. God gave the instruction. Even if you have you know, foreigners who are visiting, if they're not a part of the covenant, they're not allowed to partake. Now also understand that God gave the invitation to the nations to come and enter the covenant, be circumcised, be a part of the covenant, come to be with him, and then you may partake. But in the same kind of way, remember Lord's Supper has fulfilled the, the Passover there. It is only for the people of God. So that's a warning that we give. We also need to make clear from time to time, anyone who would be under official church discipline is forbidden from partaking. That's actually part of what it means to be under church discipline. To be under official church discipline where I either, depending on what stage we're in here, if you've entered a place of official church discipline, part of what we would be communicating to that person is, look, it does not give us happiness to say these things, but the Bible commands us to tell you something is really wrong in your life. You're not leaving this sin that is in this ongoing stage. We're, we're, we're telling you for your own soul's sake so that you do not bring judgment on yourself. Don't trample the blood of Jesus. Don't partake. So there is a way that we communicate this. There's also another question that is related to this one, and you hear it talked about from time to time, and that is, um, who does the church invite to partake of the Lord's Supper? Um, because it's related to who can and who cannot partake. Different churches hold to some different stances here. H have you heard these terms before? Open communion, closed communion, and then close communion. Let me explain what they are. Open communion uh, is practiced by some, and it's the idea that whenever the church has the Lord's Supper, they just give the announcement, hey, we're having it, y'all come. No warnings, no distinctions, no calls to take heed, anything like that. Well, I, I just think that's just so clearly wrong from even just a, a quick reading of this passage right here that there are warnings and distinctions that are made. Closed communion is when a church believes that only members of this church are allowed to partake that is there. I don't think that view is crazy, but I can't hold it. And the reason, one of the main reasons why is like even in the book of Acts, we see Paul and his companions as they would travel to the churches that were around, they would gather for worship and break bread together. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And there is something beautiful that is pictured. 
If one of our Belizean brothers or sisters, you know, traveled up here and, and came to a worship service with us, there is something beautiful that is being preached if we all partake of the Lord's Supper together. We are all a part of the body of Christ. What we practice here is, you know, a variation of this view called close communion which is essentially, it's not open just saying y'all come, but it's also for more than just members. We give the invitation. If you are truly in Christ, you have turned to him for salvation. We have folks who might be attending and trying to figure out, all right, am I gonna join this church? Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.